yeah, you know, there's a lot going on, right? It's always, always, always a lot, but it's really good for us as a community to just take some intentional time and say, God, what is it that we have, that we carry, that we burden together, that we can take on as part of our yoke as family? And so those things are hard. My encouragement to you is if you're sitting here this morning and somebody beside you or in front of you or around you just lifted up a prayer request, tell them that you love them at some point in time. Um, tell them that you're praying for them. If you want to ask for more details and write them down so you can pray for them throughout the week, these are introductions to remind us that the people in our midst around us, right with us, um, have got real needs and real struggles and real things. And so um, carry those burdens, burdens with them. And so on a lot of levels, Ephesians is a book really about that. It's a book to the church, right? It's, I went through this whole introduction and this kind of giant thing last week. I'm not going to do it this week. So if you want to hear it, go back, get on the website or go to our podcast and you can listen to the, the whole first section. But essentially, Ephesians is a book that's written to the reconciled church. It's got two main themes, right? The idea is that God has reconciled the world to himself through Christ, all of creation. And that those that he has called in Christ have been reconciled to each other and they become the church and the church exists as God's movement in the world. And that's basically Ephesians. God has reconciled the world through Christ. Those believers that have been reconciled now become the church of all nations and they become the movement of God. And so Ephesians is really that picture of community, that picture of the movement of God. And it was written directly to a group of people that were charged with this task of becoming God's basic kind of hands and feet, if you will. They are the church. It's different than all of Paul's other letters, right? A lot of his other letters are really personal, the ones that are to Timothy or Philemon or Titus, or they're really lovey-dovey like he wrote to the Philippians where he just sort of pours out his outpouring. Ephesians is formal because it's written to not just one singular group of people, but to this entire region of Ephesus, which had dozens and dozens of cell or house churches in which this letter would get passed around. And it's formal in the sense that it is a calling card, a charge, a movement forward. And as I mentioned last week, like Ephesus is the most ministered to and educated church that has probably existed in history even more so than now. And the reason we know that is because for quite some time, when Paul had his first interaction with church in Ephesus, he left Priscilla and Aquila there to teach, right? His essential, like, uh, missionary partners on this kind of journey back and towards Jerusalem, he left them there. He returns to Ephesus, and he spends three months there first, teaching every single day in the synagogue until the Jews get really angry, and they kick him out. And so he goes down the street to this lecture hall where he spends two more years every single day teaching and instructing the church, both Jews and Greeks. So basically, two years or plus of Paul's ministry life every single day teaching the church in Ephesus. And when Paul leaves, heads out of town because this big uprising happens. You can go back and listen to what it was. He leaves who? Timothy. And so Timothy, Paul's disciple, the sort of a kind of continuation of Paul's ministry stays. And so the church in Ephesus and they had the best of all teaching. You think you have it good here because you have Brandon and me, and we're so great. Like they had Paul and Timothy, right? It's like Brandon, Treb, Paul, well, maybe, you know, it's up here. So they were incredibly educated. They were like Paul's crown jewel, if you will. And so this letter is like, listen, to my prized student, you know, Paul's under house arrest in, in Rome when he writes it. He's literally facing certain death under Caesar. And he kind of writes this letter saying, look, no more lessons. I'm going to recap for you who you are and what you're to do. Now go and be the church. 
And that's the letter in Ephesus, and it's really powerful. And last week, we explored this introduction, just this tight little two-verse introduction. I told you, we're going to be looking at this sermon series a little bit differently. We're going to be taking smaller chunks of Scripture. We're going to be diving a little bit deeper into the nuances, and we're going to be trying to walk away with what is Paul telling us, or what is the Lord teaching us through Paul. And in doing so, we're going to try and dive a little bit deeper into the cracks and crevices, which may lead to some shorter sermons or whatever, may lead us to different places, but it's going to allow us to take a little bit deeper of a dive into some of the nuances. And so last week, we looked just specifically at this introduction. We talked about how Paul set this introduction up for us to understand that he has the decree of God, that what he is getting ready to speak is God's authoritative word as an apostle. And he calls the Ephesians saints, right? He calls them faithful. We talked about the expression of that, that they've been given grace and peace, and we explored what those promises were that we were given. Well, this morning he's going to take it even farther, and he's going to open up this incredible section of text, verses 3 through 14, that is really important and really powerful for a couple of reasons. One, it's important and powerful because really at its core it's a prayer. In fact, a lot of Ephesians is these sort of larger recorded prayers. There's three giant ones in the book, and the first one is 3 through 14. In fact, most scholars believe that Ephesians is a collection of prayers that Paul has for the church that he writes down and uses as opportunities to remind them who they are. We know this because in chapter 2 he tells them how often and how constantly he is praying for them. And so we see this kind of giant prayer in 3 through 14 that's really, really important. All right. The other thing that we see in those verses is that it's actually one sentence in the Greek. Now, in Hebrew, there, are, there is no punctuation. So everything in Hebrew is one giant, colossal run-on with no vowels. It's a giant mess. But in Greek, there actually is sentence structure, and this is one giant sentence. In fact, most people believe it's a doxology. And a doxology is just a fancy word for saying it's a liturgical expression of praise to God. Now, a lot of us grew up thinking there's only one doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow that song. There's actually a lot of doxologies in Scripture because all it is is in a liturgical or an orderly expression of praise to God. And so as a prayer, as a one long giant sentence, it is an expression, an orderly expression of praise. It is an orderly prayer. It is a doxology. And so it's meant to be looked at as this sort of overarching launch into Ephesians in which Paul is praying these things, not just over, but as a reminder to the church in Ephesus. And it's going to take us forever to get through it. I'm not even going to set you up. Right? It is just going to be a while. Because I set out to do four verses, and we're doing two. So that's how I sent out this giant schedule. I spent four hours carving up the entire book of Ephesians a few weeks ago. Where we're going to preach, ba-boom, I put it on this great paper. I did the heading. I sent it out to our staff and all these kind of people. Week two, I already destroyed it. So I told them, that's why we don't give these things out to the people, because there'll be riots, right? So we're in two verses, but they're really important. They're the set-up verses for this sort of prayer. And the third reason this is really important is because what Paul does in these verses is he points us to the, the most important thing that's happening in the world and will ever happen in the world, and that is God. It's a short and long answer. Everything in the Christian life revolves around understanding of who God is. It's the first great principle of theology. There is a God. The second great principle of theology is you are not him, right? Those are the two premises that all good theology hangs upon. And this first intro, this doxology, this prayer, this long sentence is a reminder that it is all about God the Father, who is going to bring us incredible things to the Spirit and in Christ. And we're going to get to see 
all of those. And so we're going to begin with those two verses um, this morning. So let's go ahead and take a moment. We'll do a quick prayer because we've done a lot of it, and then we will uh, dive into these words in text this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are so, 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 so good, that your word is living and active, that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, that it penetrates even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. It is alive. It's alive. So Lord, we do not take this lightly. We will open it this morning. We will have an encounter with you. Take a moment in your own heart as you sit here this morning and just ask the Lord to teach you something new, something fresh, or whatever he wants you to know, or maybe it's something old and stale, but he wants to cram it into your heart. Just ask the Lord to teach you. Pray for somebody beside you or around you. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Like we saw this morning, people are carrying burdens. Assume that the people around you are carrying burdens. Be someone that prays for them. You're carrying burdens. Maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your wife, maybe it's your children, maybe it's a friend or just a neighbor or a seat neighbor, or maybe you've never even seen him before, or maybe you heard the first time. It's okay. Just pray. Pray for that person and don't even know their name. Lord knows them. He knows their needs. Just pray that God would teach their hearts this morning. Be about praying for other people. As I say each week, everything unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Lord, you are just so good. We trust you. We love you. We thank you for your word that is living and active. And we ask this in Jesus' holy and redeemed name. Amen. So we're going to try and do a lot here in a real short amount of time. Um, But I'm going to tell you this. I'll tell you this first. So we know that words matter, right? They really, really, really matter. And Paul chooses his words very carefully. In fact, words matter so much that if we use the wrong one, it has an entirely different, difficult meaning. And I told this story to our staff this week because it happened to me, and this is how important words truly are, all right? So um, I had this lady, I'll leave all the names out because it matter. I had this lady call me and say, I need your help. Um, I need you to talk to this person about this thing. And help them understand, okay? Long, much longer story behind it. And I said, sure, of course, I'll help, right? So she, I call this, this gentleman, and I'm trying to explain the situation to him. And, uh, and so I get through the whole phone conversation, and I'm done. And I think he's kind of got it, but he didn't quite get it. So, you know, I gave it an old college try. So, you know, she should be happy. He should be happy. Everybody should be happy, right? And so I'm driving from my house to our staff meeting on Tuesday morning, and I talk to text. Do you guys talk to text? It's both a blessing and the world's biggest curse, right? Because I end up spending more time trying to look at what I did wrong, and so it doesn't work. But in the car, you know, you can shout, hey, text so-and-so, tell them whatever, whatever. And so I do just that. I'm like, hey, Siri, send so-and-so a text, and I'm driving. I say, "Uh, I got to talk to so-and-so. He both understood and at the same time didn't understand, which I find really fascinating. But there it is done driving down the road and sent the message and all that. And then I get a text reply back. And I look at it and it says, I'm not sure I agree. And I went, that's kind of a weird response. In fact, then the second message came through and in fact goes, actually, I really don't agree. And I went, oh man. And all of a sudden, you have that feeling that washes over your soul. That's like, what did I send, right? <laughs> and I looked down at the message and it, my message says, when I remember what I said, I said to Siri, I swear I said to Siri, I talked to him, he both gets it and doesn't get it. It's actually really fascinating. What Siri sent was, 
I talk to him, he both gets it and doesn't get it. It's actually sexually fascinating. I wanted to drive my car into the bridge. I was like, oh dear Lord. So you can't fix that via text, right? So I'm scrambling to call. I'm like, oh my God, I don't know. I'm screaming into the phone, like, I don't find that sexually fascinating. I don't even know what that means. Oh, it was a nightmare. She's like, oh. it's just like terrible, right? The words matter. One word makes a massive, massive difference in how you read and see and hear stories. Paul chooses his words incredibly important. They are high value. He uses every one of them very intentionally. And that's why when we look at scripture, we're going to tear some of these words apart. Right? That's a little bit of PG-13 story. So, you know, here we are. Um, they're important. And so Paul uses them as important. So let's look at these words and let's unpack them one by one because they're great. So this is what Paul says, coming off this great intro into, into this giant prayer, this doxology, this one giant amazing run-on sentence in which he's setting us up for how great God is. He says this, praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for he chose us us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And then there's two weird words that say in love, and then verse five starts, which remember all your numbers in the Bible were added much later. They weren't like the, Paul didn't write, all right, one, let's see. He didn't put these little verse markers in there. I think this one's in a weird place. Brandon's gonna be picking up next week when he talks about verse five. We're gonna look at that in love. We're gonna actually stop in his sight. So praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So Paul starts off this thing by saying, listen, praise be to God. Or some of your verses may say, God be blessed, or God is blessed, or praise be to God, or blessings to God, right? He says, in our Lord Jesus Christ, you have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ by God, our Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul's getting ready to set up for the Ephesians are two really important things he's going to tell them. One, he's going to tell them that they are truly blessed, and we're going to take that a little bit for granted because you've got to understand what it's like to be a believer in the first century where there are very few other believers, where life is incredibly hostile, where you're living in a very predominantly Greek culture that is everywhere around you. Remember in Ephesus, there is, it's this picture of the Roman goddess or the, the Greek goddess Artemis or the Roman goddess Diana, right? It's the giant um, Kind of, kind of wonder of the world in the ancient world was this temple that was built there. And the silversmiths and blacksmiths, they filled the city with idols. The whole city and the whole region was pagan in its nature. Uh, sacrificial worship to these God, to this goddess, that all kinds of, you know, you can use your imagination if you know much about that culture of the kind of worship that took place in the temple of a goddess. All of culture was like that. And being a believer in that scenario was really challenging and difficult because not only did the people hate you, but governments wanted you dead. And Nero, the Caesar at the time, really wanted you dead. And so every day was a day of kind of going, where is the blessing in this? We're alone. We've lost all of our family because we chose to follow Christ. Everything about our culture points to the opposite. We're being blacklisted and blackballed from everything that exists. It's lonely and it's difficult and it's tiring that's the life of a believer in those early 
cities. This is not generational Christianity where you got taught by your grandmother and by her grandmother. You are first generation, first um, generation Christians. And so Paul begins by saying, look, there's a couple of things that I want you to understand. And that first one is that you are blessed. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells us that we've been blessed. He's talking to the church in Ephesus and actually all believers, so we're grafted into this. We've been blessed for several reasons. First, we're blessed because God is our Father. Now, this is something that's echoed all throughout Scripture. In fact, Paul really hammers it in Ephesians. We're going to see it a bunch. He calls upon the beauty of God the Father all the time. And not only is God our Father, but he's God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's this overarching, Father-centric picture of who God is. And it's really important for us to understand that because that's the nature of who God is in Scripture. In our culture today, right, we're pressed and taught and pushed to get away from the sort of male-dominated patriarchal idea in which fathers are a certain thing and they have a certain role and responsibility. Do what you want to with all that, but Scripture teaches us that the role of God the Father is the actual role of patriarch, provider, protector, both tender and warrior. Right? That is God's role as father. And Paul lifts that role up by saying, essentially, we are blessed to have the same father as our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, whatever your understanding of your earthly father is, doesn't really matter. You may have a great picture of your dad. He was a great leader. He was a great person. He spoke truth over you, or he taught you, or he protected you, or he was tender and kind, or whatever. Or maybe you have a terrible picture of a father, or maybe you don't have a picture at all. Maybe you were too young to have known your dad, or maybe he wasn't the picture. Maybe you come from a split home, or maybe your dad was hard and angry, or he wasn't a believer. Right? We allow a lot of those things to affect our understanding of who God is as a father. I don't want a father like the one that I have, but what Paul is saying is that whatever background you come from, I want you to understand that you are blessed because you have a perfect heavenly father who knows everything that you've done, we're getting ready to see, and loves you and protects you and cares for you anyway. So the first blessing that you have is that even though you're not a Jew, right, you still have the same father as all believers, including our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul's telling the Christian community, which you and I are a part of, is there are not any exclusive rights to the fathership of God. And for that culture, that was a big deal because they believed that the Jews were God's first chosen people, and they are right. God chose the Jews as his people to be a representation of his love to the world. But through Christ, all people were grafted in, which is why God reconciles all of creation to himself. Therefore, there is no hierarchy in Christ. We are all one. The entire book of Ephesians is about this. All of us have been reconciled, and we have the same Father. It doesn't matter what you look like what your skin color is, where you're from, where you were raised, what side of the tracks you were on. In Christ, we have the same exact loving, tender, protective, warrior, Father God. And he says, you are blessed by it because it's the same Father that is over and our own Lord Jesus, right? So this is kind of a setup to basically say, you are all one. And in that culture, they didn't all feel like one. They were the Jews and they were the Greeks, And Paul says, nope, there's one, right? So the church today, rightly so, as Paul's words, is reconciled to one body, no matter where you're from, what language you speak, whether you're from Haiti, China, France, here, South, North, Edmund, Moore, Norman, whatever you look like, wherever you come from, whatever your skin color is, does not matter. We all are grafted into one giant family, reconciled by Christ under one father. God is our loving, 
perfect, tender, holy, majestic, righteous, righty, a right warrior God. He is Father God. And Paul says, we have been blessed by it. But let me tell you how else you're blessed. You're also blessed in the spiritual realms, right? You've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. So God the Father has blessed us in the heavenly realms by giving you every spiritual blessing in Christ. Meaning, as a believer, he is not withholding anything from you. You have the full blessing and the full gifting of God the Father the moment that you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You have been blessed spiritually in the heavenly realms. You have been saved and you have redeemed and it is something that you only have in Christ. Meaning, those blessings are not for people outside of the body. See, there's something that transpires when we, re, we surrender our hearts to the lordship of Christ. God the Father fills us with the Holy Spirit. And we've been given every spiritual blessing already, meaning that there is not a hierarchical blessings that come as a follower of Christ. That once you hit level two, you get this. Once you hit level three, you get that. Once you make it to level five, self-actualization. That's not what happens the moment you say yes to Jesus, the floodgates of blessing open and God gives it all to you. It's actually what separates Christianity from pretty much every other dominant world religion, which is the moment you ask a, a Christian, what does it mean to be a Christian? We can open the entirety of scripture to you and say, this is what it is. I will tell you the first and the last and every nuance in between. There are no hidden sections. If you ever try and ask a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness about what it means to be one of those, they will walk you through a progressive pattern in which you are only given information once you've achieved another level. Once you've achieved that level, then you get another insight and another insight. God tips the whole hand of everything and says, this is all yours. Every spiritual blessing. Now, understand this. Spiritual blessings and physical and material blessings are very different because the Ephesians were living in a very difficult world. They were living in a world where people wanted them persecuted or killed or pushed outside. They wanted them away. And what Paul's saying is like, listen, your blessings don't come from what you have. They're not even gonna become because they're written on what's happening materially around here. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ, which means no matter what you're walking through, you have every reason to praise God because he's your father and he has already given you everything that you need. Everything that you need. And it is yours in Christ, meaning you don't have to do it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to find another level for it. You don't have to do so many Hail, Hail Marys or so many prayers or so many things. It's yours. And it's yours only in Christ, and it can only be enjoyed in Christ. Meaning the outside world will not get it because they don't even have access to it. So if you expect the world around you to understand the peace of Christ, it will never happen. Because understanding the spiritual blessings that come from knowing Christ come only from knowing Christ. You can't explain it. It's like trying to explain the peace of God to someone who never experienced God. You just can't. That even though I'm facing tragedy or struggle or fear, and I am sad and I am broken and I am worried, there's this thing in me that just says, I have hope. And I can't explain it to you. And you may not get it. And my heart breaks, but there's this wash in me that just says, there is a God. And he is real. And he is my hope. That my world may be falling apart from my financial world to my relationships to whatever it is, but my God is my rock, and as, as David says, my refuge, my stronghold, and I will not be shaken. That is the spiritual blessing that comes 
from knowing God as Father and having every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now see what Paul is intentionally doing? You can see the Trinitarian picture there, right? We have this incredible Father, God, who is the perfect example of tenderness and warrior. We have this picture of who is giving us the spiritual blessings through the Holy Spirit that is ours in Christ. So we've got this picture of God the Father and God the Spirit and God the Son into this incredible encompassment that makes our life a believer. And Paul says this, you're blessed, so praise God. Now for those folks, it's hard to look at that as blessing at times. And for some of us sitting in here today, even kind of going through our own prayer time, it's hard to see that, right? It feels, it feels hard. But Paul says, listen, you've got an incredible father that loves you, like dearly and deeply loves you. You've been, every, you've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. And it's yours to enjoy and to understand and to have in its fullness. So you're spiritually blessed. No matter what goes on around you, no one can take that from you. And then he says this. He goes on to say this. Not only have you been blessed, but you have been chosen. He chose us. So he blessed us and he chose us. Listen to verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. For he chose us, believers, right? All those that are reading this letter in Ephesus and outside of it, you and I chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So Paul's alluding to this Christian doctrine that we call election or predestination. This idea that before the creation of the world, God made a move in which he chose and knew you before you ever were a single thought, a glimmer in your parents' eye, an idea, a breath, a heartbeat, God knew. God was before time began. God will be before after time ends. God from the beginning of time and before all creation knew, which is such a mind bender, right? But the reality is that God knew. And before time began, he chose us, you believers, followers of Christ, to be his. It's this doctrine of election in which a lot of us today sit around, theologically we want to debate. But Paul didn't ever see it as a debate. He actually saw it as an incredible comfort. Never once in Scripture do we see Paul arguing the merits of predestination or election. He just simply says, God did this. He called you before the creation of the world. He chose you. Next week we're going to see him talk about how he predestined us as sons and daughters and adopted us into his family. Meaning, before we could even make a choice, God said, you are mine. Right? For a lot of us, that may be a hard thing to swallow because we want this understanding of like this perfect picture of freedom in which God gets a choice, Satan gets a choice, and then your ultimate decision is to decide which one. The problem with that, it's just not biblical. That's a big problem, right? The Bible never talks about it like that. The Bible always talks about it as God did and you did nothing. You couldn't earn it, you couldn't work towards it, you couldn't make it happen. God did all the work. And so the idea of divine election, just from the onset without getting into the weeds, is simply this, that God chose you before you ever had a chance to choose him because you never could. In all of his holiness and all of his righteousness and all of his majesty, you will never, ever end up there. I told you this before, my philosophical theology professor in, in college used to say this all the time. He said, I've studied all of my life, every great, every great philosophical mind there is, Every single one of them. He was an arrogant guy. Every single one of them, right? And he goes, I've landed on two incredible truths. There is a God, and my rational mind did not land on that. Meaning, there is God, and he had to show me, because I studied everything I could and couldn't find him. 
See, our, our actions, our behaviors, our thoughts, our searchings never lead us to God. God always opens and invites spiritually. God is the one who opens those doors. God is the one who makes the initiation with creation. God is the one who does the movement and the choosing. He is the one who does. And here's why Paul found this so incredibly comforting. is because it doesn't rely upon him and it didn't rely upon you. Think about Paul's scenario. Did Paul choose God? Here's Paul on his way to Damascus to capture and kill Christians. He's got a letter by the high priest saying, I cannot wait. Not only am I going to prison all these folks, but I'm also going to raise myself to the ranks of hopefully one day the highest among all the Pharisees, and everyone will love me. And I'm going down the road, and I've got this plan, and God shows up, and with this bright, bright flashing light, I go blind, and God says, Paul, what are you doing? And what does Paul say? He says, who is this Lord? And he says, this is Jesus whom you're persecuting. Get up and go down into town and wait for me and I'll show you what you will do. Paul gets up and he goes down around, he waits for him, and he just waits. Remember, we talked about this last week, Ananias is a big part of the story where God shows up to Ananias and says, Ananias, you're gonna go down to Saul, right? That was his name at the time, his Greek name, Saul. And you're gonna tell him that he's been chosen as an instrument by God to take the gospel to the Jews and the Greeks and their kings. And Ananias says, I don't think so. This guy's a freak show, man. You do not want to. And God says, you'll go. And Ananias says, I'm going. <laughs> Shows up and says, he says, brother, brother. He calls him brother, right, which is amazing because he's already put, literally already put some of their believing friends in jail and he was there when Stephen was killed. So if you want a real brother, Stephen may be a better example. But nonetheless, Ananias looks at Saul and he says, because God called you, you're my brother. You want to talk about one father, Right? Even though you stood there as our brother Stephen died and gave basically your blessing, he says, Brother Saul, God has sent me to restore your sight so that you can basically take the gospel to the world. And I was just waiting on you to make a decision. That's not how it ends. He says, you've been chosen. And Saul says, I have been. See, the idea of God making the move is actually one of real comfort because left up to my own devices, I literally should probably be in a ditch somewhere or at least serving my own selfish purposes, driving my own life deeply into the ground. But this amazing picture is where Paul goes, look, before the creation of the world, he chose you. And he chose you for two reasons. And this is the concept that falls over all of believers, right? He chose you for two things. He chose you, one, you see it in there, to be holy, and two, to be blameless in his sight. So we've talked a lot about holiness, so I won't get into it too much, but holiness is this idea of not perfect piousness. It's not this idea that God is calling you to never do anything wrong. Holiness is actually an idea of being, being set apart, right? It comes from this Levitical idea, which has a Hebrew word, the word kadosh, which means to be set apart. When God tells the Israelites in, in Leviticus that they are to be holy as he is holy, he's saying, you are to be set apart by me. You are going to be used for a set apart holy purpose, one that will reflect me to the world. And this is carried over into the church. The church becomes the picture of God's holiness. Peter echoes it when he says, God has said, be holy because I am holy. And I'm saying to you, be holy because I am holy. We are set apart together. So to be a follower of Christ, he has chose you before the creation of the world to be holy, to be set apart. In other words, you are not to be part of the world. Right? You are both here, but not here at home. You live here, but you are a stranger or an alien, as Scripture tells us. Why? 
Well, because I've been set apart. Because when God saves me, redeems me, chooses me, he plucks me out of this desperate and dying and broken world, and he gives me a new home and a new identity. My identity is now in Christ. My home is now in heaven. That is biblical from the beginning to the end. And I have been set apart. Set apart for a specific purpose as the church to be the mouthpiece and messenger and movement of God to the world. That's the call of the believer. Right? Paul calls it an ambassador. That you have been reconciled to God and you have become his ambassador. So that's what it means to be set apart. You have been called to be holy. So we have to ask ourselves, am I living set apart, apart from this world? Am I living wholly different in which I'm an ambassador for the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world? That is your calling as a believer. And that's what he's telling the church in Ephesus and therefore all of us. He's saying as believers, God has chosen you before you ever did a thing, before you could ever make a movement, before you ever made a right or wrong choice, God chose you. Right, Not because of anything that you would do, because you would never be able to do it. And he has set you apart to be holy. And then he goes, he has set you apart to be blameless in his sight. Are you blameless? No. In fact, you are totally to blame. You are reckless, and you are selfish, and you are sinful, and you are arrogant, and you are prideful, and you are a liar, and you are a stealer, and you are mean, and you are unkind. And that was this morning. Right? And I am all of those things. So he set us apart to be blameless, where? In his sight. Not blameless because you're now perfect. You're blameless in his sight. Now, how does that happen? That's the beauty of the gospel. Because while you are still to blame for all of the things I just mentioned and a thousand more, God sent his son to reconcile your life to him through his death on the cross and his resurrection so that when you stand before a holy God, your blame is transferred to Christ. And you get Christ's righteousness. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What that means is that God made Christ to become our sin so that we might get his righteousness. Not that we're blameless, but in God's sight because of Christ we are. That's the picture of the gospel. So God has chosen you before the beginning of the world to be set apart and to be saved and blameless by him. Not because of your actions, but because of Christ. You are blameless in his sight. Now what's incredible in all of this, right, is that we've been blessed and we've been chosen and none of it has anything to do with you. You did nothing to earn the blessing of God the Father. You didn't deserve it, neither did I. We didn't didn't deserve God to love us this way. We didn't deserve for him to send his son to die and give us life. We didn't deserve for him to take every broken relationship we understand as father on the earth and show us what the perfect heavenly father looks like. We don't deserve his tenderness and compassion. We don't deserve his discipline, his guiding hand, his warrior heart. We don't deserve it, yet he gives it to us and we are blessed. And furthermore, we don't deserve the spiritual blessings he lavishes on us. We don't deserve him to open the floodgates of grace and wash over our lives. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve every spiritual blessing in Christ, but God freely gives it. We also don't deserve to be chosen, to be called, to be plucked out of this world. We are fully and totally to blame. Everything in you is reeking with sinful and selfish behavior. And God in his infinite, incredible grace, before you could even make a breath or make an excuse or make an argument as to why you think you deserve something, God says, I love you. I love you. 
And everything that you will do, I will lay upon my son and I will see you as him. And you will be blameless in my sight before you ever make one mistake. One breath, one lie. Before you ever do one of them, you're mine. And Paul says, this is the most beautifully comforting idea in all of history. It's not about me. Paul's life was heading in the other direction and God says, nope, I chose you and I blessed you. So as I look at this, right, and we wrap all this up, I say, what is the walk away with these, these ideas here? Well, there's a couple of things, lots of things, but the, the kind of ones I boiled it down to are this. First of all, we should praise God always, right? Look, life is hard. You, you don't have to sit here very long. We just did our prayer time. There are a lot of things going on that are out of our control that are hard. Life is really really hard. And it's hard everywhere. It's not just here. I know a lot of us look at this and be like, man, this is the worst time in human history. Everything's terrible right now. We got this president doing this and that president did that and this one did that. Just walk through history, right? This is as bad, if not much better than it's always been. History is a nightmare of murder and war. You want to live among Genghis Khan, his buddies? You wouldn't. You'd be dead. He's responsible for literally the death of like 20 million people. Right? You want to live through these crazy, awful plagues and wars and things. Like history is broken because sin is real. So the reality is, is although it feels bad now, it's always been bad. And the only hope and remedy is Christ. Like we always have reason to praise the Lord. Like look where you're sitting. You made a choice to get up and show up in a believing place where you could drive to worship and get coffee and eat a donut and be out of here by noon. Ruth reminds us that her friends in Haiti don't get that luxury. And we have friends in China when we were there that aren't even allowed to meet together. We have believers in Afghanistan that every day know that they poke their head out the window as a day that they get killed by the Taliban because they decided to give their life to Christ. And being killed means being hung in a public square. Most likely, the most indifference that you and I will ever have, the most difficulty we'll ever have, right, is someone will call us too religious or conservative, whatever, not politically, but otherwise, because we decide that we believe that Scripture says that marriage is something that is honor between a man and a woman. Society will catch you. Paul says, look, there's always reasons to praise God. And if you need to look far, he's your father. He's the protector. He's your warrior. He's the tender compassion. He is God the father, and he's grafted you into his family. So no matter what you face, there's always reason to praise God. The second thing that we see right there is that we're really called to live like we're blessed. Because we are. Man, we are grumblers. We're complainers. We complain and grumble constantly about what's this or why did he get that or she got that and I don't have that or they make this or they don't make this or so-and-so got this or life isn't fair. It's not whatever, whatever, whatever. Like we always have reasons to complain about every single thing. This school is that. That school does this. This thing is this. My street is this. I mean, if you have an HOA, this is where we live. Someone drove over my Trump sign. Ah! I mean, like that's the constant Source of we live in a place where we just grumble and complain all the time. As believers, we are called to be peacemakers, but we're also called to be people that live like we are truly blessed because we are. 
So if you have a grumbling spirit and a grumbling heart and you are a believer, you need to ask yourself why. You've been blessed. Not only have you been blessed by an incredible God and Father, but you've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ, which means whatever your daily struggle is, is so minor in comparison to the fact that you've been rescued and saved. And you did nothing to earn it or deserve it. The easy way to do this is just to be grateful and be humble. Like, just live a life of gratitude, man. Like, look where you get to live and what you get to do. Be grateful and be humble. Don't try and win every single argument. Who cares? Just be kind. Because you're blessed. Live like you're blessed. Like, look. I'm not talking about where you go on Facebook, like, woo, Lord's bless us. We've got a new Mercedes. Thanks be to God. You know, whatever. That's just an arrogant jerk. Like, just be blessed. Like, oh, man, I got to draw breath this morning, right? In a place where I get to come to worship at my choosing. <clears throat> and God, I, I probably, if I look at my house, I was living in my 20s. You've been really good to me. And you've rescued me and you've saved me from a whole lot of heartache. And every time I find myself in a difficult place, I turn around and you're still there. Like, you've never quit me. I'm going to be grateful today. Even though it's a hard, 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 hard day, I'm going to be grateful. So we get this idea that we can, we get to praise God always, and we get to live like we're blessed. And then finally, just quickly, we're just going to live in the security of knowing that we've been saved. Like, like that's a big deal. This is what Paul talks about. Like, you've been chosen, and you've been set apart, and you've been called to be blameless in his sight. So live with that security. Like, just trust that God is who he says he is, and that... You don't have to live in fear and anxiety. They captivate and steal our hearts. The idea of worry is actually a Greek word that comes from this, it comes from a divisive or broken mind. So this, the word that makes up worry is actually a word that means a kind of a divided mind, meaning that we, we know on one side, but we let that side be betrayed. And that's what worry essentially is. It's the betrayal of our mind. It's, it's saying that God says to have peace, but I'm not sure I can trust him. Paul says, let your security rest in Christ. He chose you. He knows you're not perfect. You are to blame. You can beat yourself up over it every breath and every moment and remind yourself what a bad dad you are, what a bad husband you are, mom you are, how you let your kids down or all the things that you didn't do. And you can beat the tar out of yourself or you can rest in the idea that you've been saved and that you're broken and that you're gonna work to be better. Not better for God, but just better as a responsible care person of his blessings. Right? You're never going to earn your way or perform your way closer to the Lord. He's already given you the floodgates of grace. So then our response is just, I want to be better because I want to honor you. And so I'm going to rest in my eternal security. I'm not going to try and earn it or perform for it. I'm just going to rest in it. I'm going to be grateful for God's grace. I'm not going to be arrogant. I'm going to be grateful and I'm going to be humble. And I'm just going to praise the Lord. Like That's who I want to be. And in the middle of all that, when I blow it, I'm going to live a life of confession. God, I'm sorry. You freed me in Christ. I claim it and I'm going to walk in it not going back where I was. And that's where Paul is setting us up. And he's going to tell us something great next week. And it's going to be beautiful. Where he's going to tell us about this idea of adoption. And this idea of adoption is overflowing and extravagant love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth that comes in just this little text, these little verses, this just this floodgates of beauty that are wrapped up in what Paul is telling us that we are we are blessed because we have God the Father who lavishes love freely upon us and grafts us into all other believers 
And that, Lord, we have been given every spiritual blessing. The floodgates of grace have been opened to us. They are ours in Christ. And that before the creation of the world, God, you loved us so much that you chose us as believers before that moment would even happen. That I can rest in the idea that you loved me that much. That I could do nothing to earn it, merit it. But before the creation of the world, God, you chose us as believers to be set apart, holy, and blameless. Things we cannot do on our own. You set us apart. You made us blameless in Christ. And so, Lord, let us take those blessings and live as people that are constantly praising the Lord, constantly blessed. Dump the arrogance. Dump the ungrateful attitude. Dump the complaining. Dump the worry. Dump the anxiety. And rest in the security and the beauty of a life that is overflowing with blessings, even in its darkest and most difficult moment. You never leave nor forsake, for you are the perfect heavenly Father. Let's close our time as we stand up and worship, thanking God for these truths and proclaiming all that he is. I was an orphan lost at the fall, running away when I'd hear you call. But Father, you worked your will. I have no righteousness of my own. I have no right to draw near your throne. But Father, you love me still. And in love before you lay the earth's foundation, you predestined to adopt me as your own. You have raised me up so high above my station. I'm a child of God by grace and grace alone You left your home to seek out the lost You knew the great and terrible cost Jesus, your face was set. I worked my fingers down to the bone, but nothing I did could ever atone. Jesus, you paid my debt. By your blood, I have redemption and salvation. Lord, you died that I and you rose that I might be a new creation I'm born again by grace and grace alone 
darkness all of my life. I never knew the day from the night, but Spirit, you made me see. I swore I knew the way on my own, head full of rocks and heart made of stone, but Spirit, you As you walk out of here empowered by the Holy Spirit, believe those things to be true, that you are going to live a life of praise because God has blessed you and opened up every spiritual blessing of Christ to you and through you, and that we are called to live in the beauty of that security, of God's grace and his peace. Go in peace.